Welcome to the Art School Podcast. I'm Ken Goshen. Today's episode is a truly rare treat, and I feel privileged to be able to share it with you. I learned so much during this conversation, and I have no doubt you'll learn at least as much as I did. Stay tuned. My guest today is Stephen Diamant. He's the owner and founder of Arcadia Contemporary, one of the world's leading galleries for realistic art. Arcadia was founded in 2001 with a mission to exhibit highly skilled representational artists. The gallery attained international renown for featuring works that revealed their creators' ability to paint and draw well in concert with unique signature styles. Arcadia Contemporary proudly maintains its commitment to presenting virtuoso realist works from an international array of artists who are creating genuinely unique, timeless, and collectible artwork. Stephen and I covered several pressing topics, like how to work with galleries, the business of sales, the importance of Instagram for artists, how art universities are delinquent in their duties, timelessness and trends in the arts, and more. This is also the first podcast episode that I recorded in person. I came down to Arcadia with two microphones and we recorded the talk right there in Stephen's office. How cool is that? Very, very cool. These kinds of unique interviews with major figures in the field is something I'd love to do more of. But as you can imagine, devoting a day to traveling with recording equipment is difficult and very costly. The only reason I was able to do it is because of the generous support from my Patreon community. If you find value in these interviews, you can become a supporter for as little as $2, and you'll know that your money goes towards helping me produce free art educational content that everyone can benefit from. I know what you're thinking. How does my $2 help Ken with anything? It's half the price of a cup of coffee. Well, it adds up. Let me tell you, if everyone listening to this decides to join as a $2 supporter, I'll have the budget to make this podcast bi-weekly. How fun would it be to have more of these episodes, right? You want it, I want it, so let's do it. To become a supporter, please visit patreon.com slash kengoshen. That's patreon.com slash kengoshen. And you can find this link in the show notes of every episode. Once you lend your support to my mission, you can immediately bask in the knowledge that it's listeners like you who make all of this possible. Whenever a new episode drops, you'll know you basically co-produced it and it will be your project too. And to all of you who are already Patreon supporters, know that you were right there with me as I went down to Arcadia for this interview. You paid for the microphones, you paid for the travel, and you paid for me to be able to devote a day to the work you want me to do. You have my sincere gratitude. And now I bring you my conversation with Stephen Diamant. Thank you so much for taking the time for doing this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Perhaps uh, you can start by giving us a little elevator bio, like how did you come to do what you do? Where did you study? What brought you to this point? Sure. I went to Syracuse University back in the prehistoric ages and was an advertising major, actually in copywriting with a minor in psychology. And when I graduated, I was hired by an arts and entertainment public relations firm to write different things for their different accounts. And one of the accounts that I was given was a fine art publishing company called Eleanor Ettinger Incorporated, which was run by this incredible woman, Eleanor Ettinger. Um, she had, it was here in Soho, she had a 15,000 square foot lithographic studio that had the original antique French presses that Lautrec used to work on and wow. create his limited editions. And she imported them from France and built a studio here in New York City. 
And that was one of the accounts that I was writing for. I would be, would be writing artist biographies for her. I would be writing uh, release notices about additions coming out from the studio, etc. And then one year, they were exhibiting at an art fair. Years and years ago, there used to be an art fair in New York called Art Expo, which at the time was a huge art fair before any of these other art fairs were even started. And it was much more commercial, but galleries from all over the world would go and see what's new in the limited edition market and in the originals market. And they needed some additional people to help them just man the booth. That was all, you know, just to be there to answer questions. And because I had spent a lot of time learning about the artists and learning about their business and learning about what was in the booth, uh, they asked if they could borrow me from the PR firm. And they said yes. And so for five days, I was there in the booth answering questions. I think I was 23 or 24 at the time. Uh, It was more enthusiasm than knowledge on my part, but that's okay. And at the end of the fair, I wound up selling considerably more art than anybody else on their staff. And again, it was probably just out of sheer enthusiasm than anything else. And so after that, I went back to work at the PR firm and Eleanor called me and said, hey kid, you want a job? And so I thought, sure, why not? So I went to work for her in this fine art publishing company. Uh, Artists and publishers from around the world would go to them to have their limited edition lithographs created. Everybody from Andy Warhol to Peter Max to whoever, the the complete gamut, to Marisol, to you name the artist, they printed lithographs at the Atelier Ettinger. And I was there for a few years, and then I thought, well, why aren't we representing some of these artists? So I got them to devote some of the space to becoming a gallery where they could actually show these works that were being created. And that wound up doing very well. And then after a few years, I then thought, hey, we should probably move downstairs at street level and open up a gallery. Uh, That was also around the the advent of Chiclets and limited edition prints that were done photomechanically instead of the time-honored traditional way, which is how she did it. And so the need for hand-drawn lithography on antique French presses was decreasing and decreasing. And we were actually building up the attention and the demand for the artists that we were representing. So it was a logical progression to go from wholesale into retail and from being on the seventh floor of a building to being street level. And that gallery opened in, I think it was 1996, something like that. And then after a few more years, which was my 14th year with Ms. Ettinger, uh, I just decided it was time to move on. I'd been there long enough and I wanted to go do something else. I truly did not know if I was going to be opening up a gallery or what I was going to be doing, um, but I knew I just needed to move on. And so I said goodbye, and a couple of the artists that I had actually brought into that gallery said to me, well, if you ever do open up your own gallery, we'll come with you. And one thing led to another, and in 2001, 
February of 2001, I opened up Arcadia Gallery on Green Street between Broom and Grand. Wow. So in your description, you kind of explain it as if every step of the process made business sense. Yeah. But did at any point, did you discover that you really love doing this? And if so, when? What I discovered is I loved every aspect of it. Mm. I loved the business aspect of it. I loved the sales aspect of it. I loved the creative and artistic aspect of it. I loved looking for new talent. Uh, there really wasn't any part of it that I didn't like, with the exception of bookkeeping and all of that stuff that takes up so much of my time and all those sort of behind-the-scenes things. Um, when I would rather be talking with artists, visiting studios, being in the gallery more, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but for me, there, there isn't a part of it that I really don't enjoy doing. I love talking with artists. I love meeting new artists. I love, for lack of a better word, discovering new talent. And then in turn, introducing that work to the collectors that we work with. Now, there's nothing more exciting than finding an artist, having an exhibition for them, and having everything sell in the show, it, it's, it's just nice on every level, monetarily, psychologically, you name it. And just, it's a win-win for everybody. Collectors get to see work that they probably never would have seen before and acquire it. The artists get an opportunity to be shown and sold when prior to meeting us, they may not have been selling their work well enough. And, you know, we discover a new artist. So it's it, everybody wins. And how do you go about hunting for talent, discovering new artists? Every possible way you can think of, from scrolling on Instagram incessantly to looking online to going to art fairs. Uh, there's so many things. We're, we're featuring an artist in our August show who I saw at an art fair a year and a half ago. I just thought the work was amazing. And so I reached out to her and I said, we're doing this show in August. Would you be interested? And she said, yes. So that's one way. Another way is Instagram. Uh, some of the most popular artists that we're representing at the moment, um, I actually found on Instagram. Um, one of those would be Dennis Sarazin, mm -hmm. who's a Ukrainian artist who's actually here in the United States. He's safe. He and his wife. Uh, found his imagery on Instagram and was amazed by what he was doing. And he had not worked with a gallery prior to us connecting with him. All of his work had been pretty much self-shown in various spaces around Ukraine, but never in a gallery environment. And so we reached out to him, contacted him, Asked him, we were doing a big art fair a few months after we initially reached him and said, would you be able to send us one painting that we could show? And he sent us a piece. We probably could have sold it 20 or 30 times during the art fair. The response to the image was just so extraordinary and to his style of painting. And uh, at the end of this year, we'll be hosting his second one-man show. And he's also had shows in other cities around the world. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that we found him and exposed his work to collectors and to galleries around the world. So it's, that's an example of how Instagram had been 
a wonderful tool. We also occasionally uh, get somebody reaching out to us. We, we get a lot of submissions every month, really large number, which is a great compliment. But the majority of the work probably just isn't right for us, uh, whether it's stylistically, whether it's term, in terms of subject matter, etc. But every once in a while, we'll get a submission from somebody that makes you sort of look and say, this is interesting. Hmm. And so we'll reach out from there. So every possible way you can think of is how we find our artists. This is really interesting because the whole subject of social media is extremely live and you know, pressing in the life of, of, of contemporary young artists. They kind of, people find themselves on the spectrum of whether or not they're willing to devote any time to actually like uploading and putting their stuff on there. And other people are more like studio animals and they say, I can't deal with that stuff. This gives me such a headache. And so I wonder from your perspective, what would your advice be to painters who are in their 20s, in their 30s? What should their relationship be to social media considering how you say it's a major factor uh, that you use to find new talent? It should be a very strong and close relationship. I think any artist that doesn't take advantage of free social media like Instagram or Facebook is passing up an extraordinary opportunity that they may not be aware of. If I were to say to an artist, I would like to put a full-page ad in Art News Magazine with your work, would that be okay? And we'll pay for it. They're not going to say no. So why wouldn't you do the same thing in social media, which is going to reach many, many, many more times whoever's going to look at that magazine ad? So it, to me, it doesn't make sense. If you don't like social media, that may be a personal reflection of how you feel. But you need to separate your personal life from your artist life, from your business life. You, you need to realize that they can be two different things. There are some artists who intertwine their social life to their professional life um, make it essential to their work and others do a very very good job of separating the two they may have two accounts where one is just a personal account and they'll do selfies or whatever it is that they want to post pictures of their dog whatever and then subsequently they have an additional presence that is just about the work and i i don't know why you would do that because I know for a fact that there isn't a gallery owner in the world that isn't looking at social media, that isn't looking at what artists are doing and what's being created out there. Same thing for a gallery. If you're not using social media to your advantage, uh, you're, you're passing on an extraordinary opportunity. We have specific examples as a gallery where we have posted a work on our Instagram account or on Facebook. And truly, no more than two or three minutes later, we've received a call from somebody who said, you just posted on something on Instagram. Is that available? And we've sold it. You, you can't ask for anything better than that. Wow. So I fully agree. And of course, everybody listening knows how present I am on social media. But I wanted to ask you, a lot of gallery owners, they kind of 
don't do this kind of work themselves. Like maybe they have a deputy, somebody else is running it. But sure. the way that you're describing it, it sounds like you're very involved. How do you go about that? I'm very involved in suggesting mm -hmm. what we put on it. I'm not responsible for what we put on it. Um, my time is taken up doing too many other things. But I will, if I see something, if I see one of our artists mentioned in somebody else's account, if somebody posts something about one of our artists and they've come into the gallery and seen a work that they love and they post about it, I, if I see it, I will forward it to the person here at the gallery that handles the posting of, of information to social media. So I'm always suggesting. Um, there are times when I specifically say, please do this. Mm -hmm. This is what I this is what I want to show people. This is what I want it to look like, et cetera, et cetera. And they'll go ahead and formulate it and send it. Um, but for the most part, the majority of the posting is not done by me at all. Mm -hmm. I just offer suggestions. Got it. And so when you, uh, right before you open Arcadia, mm -hmm. I'm assuming you spent some time thinking what the vision of the gallery was going to be, what the mission of the gallery was going to be. Can you take us through that process of thinking about how to start this new establishment and what you wanted it to be? And then now, all these years later, do you feel like you've captured what you were setting out to do? You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. The... the did we capture what we're setting out to do is probably better left to the people that decide whether or not we're accomplishing the goal. But from the time that I was with Ettinger and after that, I had always had an interest in representational work. I was never, uh, although I respect some artists that are abstract painters or I, respect some artists that are conceptual artists, etc. Um, my, my love and my passion has always been representational. Uh, I, as a kid, like many that I know, I was infatuated with comic books and with artists who drew comics. Uh, I look back now and see that I was very particular with which comic book artists I was drawn to. Uh, you know, if anything was done by Jack Kirby mm -hmm. or if anything was done by Neil Adams, mm -hmm. I would always gravitate towards that. But so many other artists I just wouldn't even bother with. So even back then when I was a teenager, uh, I was very much, for lack of a better word, drawn to the artists that had their own unique individual style as opposed to merely just, you know, some worker bee who's creating superhero imagery that really isn't very specific. Um, when you look at comic books, if you look at Jack Kirby's work, you know right away who did it. Nobody else has before or since drawn like him. 
And the same thing with Neil Adams and with Bernie Wrightson and with so many of the others. That was always a big passion of mine. It was the art of the comics, not necessarily the stories, but the art of the comics when I was younger. And that continued through as it does today. Uh, For me, I love to see that somebody has incredible drafting ability. I want to be able to see that whether I like the work or not, they can draw really well. And then, as we had discussed previously, with that is, do they have their own style? And so it really does, somehow it was embedded in me since I was younger that you look at somebody like a comic book artist like Bernie Wrightson, he was a brilliant, brilliant draftsman that had his own style. The second you opened a book, you could tell it was a Bernie Wrightson. And, and that aesthetic has continued with the gallery today that there are artists hopefully when you look at their work whether it's a Malcolm Lipke or a Ron Hicks or a Dennis Sarazin or a Brad Kunkel or an Aaron Wiesenfeld if you're familiar with contemporary representational work every one of those names immediately elicits a specific type of imagery and a specific style And that's what I look for. I look for artists that even if I don't like the work, I know who did it right away. You know, one of the, one of the great painters, one of the great contemporary painters, uh, Jenny Seville. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I would ever hang a Jenny Seville in my home. I, I don't know that it's something I would want to collect, but boy, she know how to paint. And you know a Jenny Seville the second you see it. And that's all I would imagine that an artist can hope for Hmm. is that even if somebody approaches their work and isn't a fan, they still can respect that the artist has created this singular vision through their talent. And that's the most important thing, period. And where do you think your appreciation for representational art comes from? I, I think it was just something inherent mm. in me. I, really, I don't think, you know, I didn't go to art school. I didn't do any of that. I had, you know, no art classes or anything. But I had always been attracted to art and to those people that were creating signature imagery. I think you're in a unique position to kind of confront perhaps some comments that a lot of representational art artists get frequently in studio visits or art fairs or wherever. You get a lot of people who maybe are even interested in collecting art, but then they would say stuff like, oh, it's really nice, but I don't understand the point of, like, we have photographs. Why do we need to still deal with realism? Like, oh, I thought this kind of art disappeared how do you probably come into contact with these kinds of people what do you usually say to them well i don't i don't know that we get that much of it because we're not a gallery that features a tremendous amount of photorealism i think you'll get that when you approach other galleries that are showing hyper realist artists or photorealist artists we tend to show representational painters who are much more stylized Mm. in what they do. And their goal is not to make it look like a photo. Their goal is to create representational imagery, but in a much more stylized way. 
So we don't get a lot of that. I think also the people that tend to look at something and say, well, why don't you just have a photograph of it, are not educated as to the talent and the skill that it takes to create hyper-realistic work. Um, it's, it's not ignorance as much as it's just not being exposed to or having the education of what kind of talent and what kind of time and dedication it does to make truly realistic work. But again, in, in, in regards to the artists that we show here in the gallery, we really don't get a lot of that because the painters that we represent tend to be, for the most part, more stylized in nature. Interesting. And you mentioned before that one of your prerequisites was a display of skill. Why do you think that's important? Because I don't want anybody looking at any of the work that we have here in the gallery and thinking that they could do it. Why not? Because then it means that this is an artist who's not doing something exceptional. Because there are thousands and thousands of tremendously talented, skilled artists that are creating some wonderful works, but whose imagery is completely devoid of any singular voice. You look at the work and you don't know who did it because there are thousands of artists that could have done it. And what we look for here are painters that the second you see one of their paintings, you know who did it. There's nothing wrong with being tremendously skilled. But if you're going to be tremendously skilled, you might as well become an illustrator and solve somebody's problems. Then I need a drawing of a skeleton sitting on a balloon, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they're going to find somebody who's incredibly skilled at drafting that type of imagery or being able to do that, as opposed to somebody else who will say, I want an image that looks like a Malcolm Lipke. Because Lipke's work is so stylized and so unique to what he does that that's what I look for. There, there are tremendously talented artists who have tremendous levels of skill, whose work has no individuality to it, whose work has no voice to it. That It's great. That, that's great. And there are a lot of galleries. I, I could name 15 of them right now. There are a lot of galleries who enjoy showing work that represents a very, very high degree of skill without anything that is distinctly unique about it. They have established a very, very strong marketplace for people that like beautiful still lifes, but aren't necessarily seeking out uniquely individual still lifes. So you've been in the business for a while now, and you're in constant contact with collectors. Have you find that there have been throughout the years trends, like times when people are more interested in the kind of stuff that you do, times that people are less so, or is it a kind of constant? For us, I think it's been a kind of constant because what we look for is not something that ultimately comes and goes. What we look for are artists whose work will stand the test of time. We don't show anything like graffiti art, which is extraordinarily popular right now. 
we don't show anything that sort of pop surrealism or lowbrow, which is extraordinarily and has been very, very popular for the last 10 years or so. We try not to show any artists who are part of a trend. I try to pick artists that, I mean, there are paintings that we've sold 20 years ago when the gallery was open that I could put on the walls today and sell them the same way that I did 20 years ago because there was something timeless about the work that's being created. And that's really important for me. There, there are a lot of galleries. Most of them are, are sort of the flashy or big city galleries that find out whatever the, the newest trend is and go deep in it. And then when somebody else comes along who's doing another trend, they'll get their work. I mean, West Broadway in, in Soho is lined with those galleries. Three years ago, half their inventory wasn't even on their radar. But all of a sudden, a year ago, an artist becomes hot or a kind of painting becomes hot and they'll get as much as they can of it, try and sell as much until something new comes along. And we're not looking for the something new. We're looking for what will endure. Do you enjoy going around and going into galleries, looking at their offerings? Is that a pastime that you do? It's it's a real love-hate relationship with that I have personally with other galleries. I think that's the same with any, with any industry. I, I think if a fashion designer goes into another competitor's stores, you know, they may see something that they really, really love, but they look at other things that are there and they're like, Oh, this is just awful. And, and so I'm sure, I'm sure it's the same way. I'll go into galleries and I'll see something that I really, really, really love And then I'll see other work that I just think to myself, how could you possibly put this on your walls? But that's, you know, that's everybody's individual tastes. There are a tremendous amount of really, really popular artists right now that I, even if you gave me one, I wouldn't put it in the gallery. I wouldn't put it in my home. But I'm not the be all and end all. Every, you know, everybody, some people like blue, some people like red. Uh, some people enjoy work that, you could say, disturbs them. They, they really like to be sort of shaken up by it. And other people love things that will help them to sleep better at night. So it's all individual taste. So for me, it's, it's, it's tough for me to go into galleries sometimes because I'll just look and go, oh, I can't believe they're showing this or whatever. And I'm sure they would feel the same way if they came in here. Everybody's entitled to their own opinions and their own tastes. And so I, I, do, I do respect that, but sometimes things are just so extreme that I just have to walk out. So would you actually be in favor of more galleries showing things that are more in line with your personal taste and preference? Or... Is it good for you that Arcadia kind of stands out as a sets, sets itself apart from all these trends? That, that's an interesting question because the goal was never to set ourselves apart. The goal was to show work that we think checks all the boxes that we look for. You know, whether or not we stand out in any way is entirely up to other people. We just show what we like and show what we want to present 
to collectors because we happen to think that it's good. Like good's a relative term. Um, we happen to like work that is well executed and stylized and, and is unique. Um, we ha- now day goes by here in the gallery where there, you literally can see somebody walk in, take three steps, look around, and walk right out again. And conversely, we've had people who have never been to the gallery or ever known about us and who have spent an hour in the gallery walking around. So it's, it's completely individual. We just try to show what we think is technically well-executed work, but just as important being done by somebody who's got their own voice and their own vision for what they want to create and how they want to create it. That's more important, actually, than technique. So theoretically, let's imagine this person walking into the door, first time here, never collected this kind of work, but spends a good 45 minutes looking around. So he's, he's, he's intrigued. And you come up to him, let's say he never collected any figurative work before. What do you say to this person to kind of get him on board, to understand what he's looking at, to consider this kind of art as something that he might want to expand his collection towards? The most important part of working in a gallery is listening. Mm. It's not about you walking into a gallery and having a quote-unquote salesperson just spitting stuff at you moment after moment after moment after moment. It's For me, it's about listening to people who come in here who like what we show and wanting to know why. And then once I'm able to sort of understand what it is about the work that made them stay here for 45 minutes, then we can go on and sort of narrow it down as to what you liked specifically and why you liked it. And have you ever acquired work for your home? Have you ever acquired work in this price range, et cetera, et cetera. But but it's very much about the people that buy from the gallery tend to know what they like, which is really important. They, they know that they like a specific type of work and have sought us out because our tastes align with each other. So that, that's a, a tremendous benefit for us. Mm. If, if a person comes in like you spoke about, and if they are a collector and I start asking them about their collection, you can sort of ascertain if we're the right gallery based on what it is that they already have in their home. My experience has been people don't tend to have wildly diverse collections. They tend to want to surround themselves with what they like. Um, so it, it's rare, although it does happen, it's rare for somebody to have two pieces of abstract work and then two classic landscapes and then two contemporary figurative pieces, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. They, they tend to be drawn to a, uh, a specific type of imagery, a specific type of work, etc. So once you're able to ascertain that, then you're able to focus more into what it is that they might be interested in. So you're mentioning how important listening is. Somebody's coming in and you want to hear from them what, what they think and what they're after. What other kinds of 
skills you think are really important to being a, a good gallerist? Business. Mm. You have to understand that whether you're Larry Gagosian or somebody in a tiny, tiny little space in Brooklyn with, with no foot traffic, you have to understand that this is the art business. It's, it's nothing more. You have to understand that every aspect of business that car dealers use is the same thing that you're going to be using. Everything that restaurants use in terms of business is what you're going to be using. You can't go into this industry thinking that you're going to be successful just because of your taste or that you're going to be successful um, just because of one artist. You have to understand that there are hundreds of things behind the scenes that are very, very important to making what is thought of as a successful gallery. And history is littered with galleries that have made big splashes and two years later they're closed because the person who opened it thought it was all about opening night parties and connections and glad handing. And then they forget that it also means taking care of your employees and paying your artists and all of the other things that are a vital part of running an art gallery. It's, it's so much more than what people think it is. It's not anywhere near as glamorous as it is. It's not anywhere near as exciting as it is. Although there are moments of both. It's a business. It is a daily functioning, operating business that must be attended to. So if somebody says, hey, I really like this kind of art, let's open up a gallery, or hey, I've got somebody who's going to invest in it, let's open up a gallery, it's, it's not about opening it, it's about maintaining it. And there's a big difference between the two. You have to learn about business. You have to read about business. You have to talk to your peers. You have to explore and investigate what it takes to be a business. Just because you're running an art gallery doesn't mean you should be reading art books. Mm -hmm. It means you should be reading business books. And the art books are certainly important, but the business books are more important than anything else. What are your favorite galleries in New York or however much you want to narrow it, <laughs> if you like any other galleries? Well, there, there are other galleries that I admire for different reasons. It, you know, I, I admire somebody or something like Gagosian. Mm -hmm. I mean, the man's got 16 galleries around the world, and there isn't a day that goes by that a million-dollar piece isn't sold in there, and that's great. Uh, but there are other small, very, very small galleries that I admire very much because I see that they've made a real effort in curating mm. what they show. Um, there are also other galleries that I admire because of their social media presence. I think they do a great job of presenting the gallery um, for people to follow and enjoy and see what they do. 
Um, so th there were different galleries for different reasons. And they're not just art galleries. There are, there are galleries that, there, there are a couple of galleries in Paris that feature artistic furniture and design that I admire just because everything they have in there is gorgeous. Just everything they show by every artist is so beautifully curated that I sort of fantasize and think, you know what, I'm just going to close this gallery and go become an intern in Paris at this place because mm -hmm. I love everything they show. So for, for many, many, many different reasons, there are many, many galleries that I admire very, very quickly. There are a couple of galleries on the Lower East Side that um, I've only recently become aware of, but I really, really admire um, their ability to bang the drums and to get hundreds, if not thousands of people to an opening. Mm. Now, granted, you can't be fooled by photos of thousands of people at an opening because I guarantee you 99.9% .9 of those people are there for the beer. <laughs> they're not there for the art or they're there to see their friends or whatever. Um, but still props need to be given for this gallery's ability just to fill the space with people. Uh, and then also to see the work and see if the work is worthy of the space being filled by people. And a couple of these galleries on the Lower East Side really are doing some wonderful, exciting things that wouldn't be necessarily right in terms of imagery and work for Arcadia. But for them, it's just perfect. This is very much so-and-so's line of thinking with what they feature on their walls. And so that's very exciting. And so I'm very much impressed by them. So I don't know that there are any specific galleries that, you know, every aspect of them I just love, but there are definitely dozens and dozens of galleries that I look at and I admire greatly because there are aspects that I think they do masterfully. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit. I want to ask you, what are your thoughts on the way art is taught in art universities? Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I only know what's going on from other people that have been through the programs. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know because I'm not there in the space. Um, but what I do hear consistently is that teaching foundations of art, such as draftsmanship or, or materials even, um, has been left by the wayside by most major university art programs. It's about what's the quickest way to become a superstar as opposed to become a thriving artist. And that's, that's disheartening. I have so many young people that say, it wasn't until I left college that I learned how to draw well. It wasn't until I left college that I learned about color theory. It wasn't until I left college that I learned what a consignment agreement was. I can't tell you how many people we deal with when we do these big group shows, like our August annual five and under where everything's 5,000 or less. It's an opportunity for me to reach out to a lot of younger artists and we'll discuss getting a piece for the show. And I'll say, do you have a consignment agreement you want me to sign? The majority of them don't even know what that is. 
And to know that you've gone through four years of a school and have not been taught even the most rudimentary aspects of how to handle and sell your work is very, very disappointing. They, they don't, again, I can only go by the feedback that I get from other people, but it seems that there's a tremendous number of curriculums that don't even teach you the basics of how to show, present, or sell your work. They just expect you to be able to do it. And that's, I don't know, I, I think it's a, a tremendous deficit. I think it's a, a, it's a tremendous disservice that's being done. Because how do you know that this artist who winds up being this huge conceptual art superstar, how do you know they haven't been taken for a ride because they knew nothing about how to handle the business aspect of what it is that they're doing? So it doesn't matter if you want to be Damien Hurst or Rembrandt. It's irrelevant to what it is that you want to achieve with your work or what you want to create. And not have a business foundation is just, it's foolish. And it's, it's, it's very sad because I experience it quite frequently where somebody will bring in work and just drop it off. If, if I'm really busy with a client or if I'm on my computer and an artist comes in and drops off a painting for a show and then they leave. And I just think to myself, they've got absolutely no record of the fact that they just left one of their original paintings with us. And what if, God forbid, we decide not to give it back to them? Or what if we've never determined a price that the painting should sell for that hasn't been agreed upon already before the show opens? And I'm very concerned about that. Uh, there, there are dozens and dozens of artists that I work with that even some that are pretty accomplished that I've have contacted me and said, I've just been approached by a gallery. I was just talking to an artist the other day who's been approached by a gallery in Germany to do a show out there. And I asked her, what about the agreement? How many pieces? Who's going to pay for this? Who's going to pay for that? Et cetera, et cetera. And there had been nothing done on her for her benefit to see that happen. And that was, that was very, very, very disconcerting. And so I sent her a copy of a consignment agreement that we have and the terms that she should ask for and et cetera and all that stuff. And it happens almost on a daily basis that I'm dealing with artists who have no idea what to do. And the fact that that is in part of your freshman core or that it's a significant part of your senior year before we push you out on your own, you better make sure that you know what parts of a contract are necessary. But I guarantee you the majority of programs don't offer any kind of art, you know, the art of business and the business of art is what is vital for these young artists that are being pushed out on the streets. And again, I hear time and time and time again about artists that have been taken advantage of who have provided 12 works to a gallery and they only got six back 
And then the gallery says, ah, we have to let you know about the other six. And they spent months and years trying to get work back and don't have anything to stand on because there's no paperwork. There's no documentation that they did that they gave them these pieces. And it happens all the time. Don't think it doesn't happen. Probably thousands of people listening to us right now are just shaking in their boots because they're saying, "Good, oh my God, we're missing such fundamental skills and we don't even know what we need to be researching in order to step up to the plate. So yeah. perhaps could you list your most, uh, based on your interactions, common deficits that artists have so that the, they're listening to this right now and they're getting on Google and it's like, okay, I need to be studying this, that, that, and that. What's that list? The, the most important thing that I can say to an artist who's working with a gallery or whoever else is get everything on paper. Everything. You get the number of works. You get on paper the titles, the dimensions, the mediums, how much you are supposed to be paid should the work sell, how long the gallery is allowed to hold on to them, whether or not you can get the works back within a period of time if you want them back, how quickly you should be paid from the time that you find out that a work has been sold, what happens when you decide not to work with the gallery any longer, what rights do you have to get the works back. There, there are 20 different things in an agreement that need to be there that you need to understand and have in writing. Handshakes mean nothing. I don't care what anybody says. Handshakes, the reputation of the gallery means nothing. What matters is what you have down on paper and what you have signed. That is a contract. That is a legally binding contract that you must have the moment you give anybody your work if you have not been paid for it. That's, it's absolutely critical. Any other glaring gaps in the education of uh, youngsters who you have contact with? One of my big... Uh, one of the things that sort of I get annoyed, for lack of a better word, is if you're going to send your work to a gallery, you should be sure that in some way your work is relevant to what the gallery shows. Every month, I get these form emails from these artists, and then I look at the work, and they're abstract expressionist paintings. Every month? Oh, yeah, probably. Wow. Yeah. We get a lot of submissions. A lot. A lot of abstract submissions. No, no, no. Just oh, okay. a lot of submissions. Oh, okay. Oh, But for sure. I'd say out of 50 submissions, we probably get one that's abstract work. And I think to myself, you obviously haven't gone to the gallery's website. You haven't done your homework. You haven't done your research. If, however, there's an accompanying email that says, I realize that all the artists that you show are representational, but if you were ever thinking about expanding, I'd like to present my work. That would be fantastic. But I never get that. Mm. It's always just, I'd like to apply for my work to be shown in your gallery. And I just think, did they even look at the website? 
Mm -hmm. I mean, really, did they look at what we show? Because if you looked, you would see that there isn't a single abstract artist that we represent. And other times, there are artists who... You know, I'd like to think that there's, there's a um, sort of a consistent level of quality of the work that we show here, of the different artists that we represent. And so you'll get somebody who has, for lack of a better phrase, delusions of grandeur, mm. where you look at the work and you're like, you know, you, you really need more time studying and learning before you approach a gallery like this. I have conversely said, you know what, you should be looking at all the galleries that are local to you. Maybe there are a lot of galleries in your area that like to show local artists. But right now, your work is not in keeping with the level of quality that we try to show. So that's, that's a couple of the things. Is yeah, You need to look to really be objective enough about your own work, which some people are and some people are absolutely not able to discern. Interesting. So it sounds like you have a lot of extremely valuable insight into areas where a lot of art institutions, a lot of art educational institutions kind of leave gaps. Have you considered maybe doing courses on those things where you feel like a lot of artists, whether they come from the atelier or from the art universities, they're kind of lacking in some fundamental business sense or understanding the importance of personal style? Have anybody ever approached you about doing maybe a college class or something like your... I barely have enough time to run this gallery. Let alone <laughs> go out and do something like that. I do find myself, though, uh, in, in my desire to want to help younger artists. I do find myself, you know, espousing these thoughts quite frequently to artists. Um, you know, when they come in or... or you know, if they ask questions, whatever, um, everything that I've said to you, I know I've said thousands of times to other artists because they may display, you know, a certain element of talent and I will try to encourage that in what they do. Um, I have a lot of friends who are artists who also do teach courses and I am quite frequently zooming, doing Zoom critiques with, with those students. So I do get out there a little bit and try to, when it, you know, a friend of mine teaches a course at so-and-so, and they say, we've got our senior critique coming up. Would you be able to look at everybody's work? And I'll be glad to do that. But I haven't specifically thought of going and doing a course like that. But I, I, I just don't understand why these academies and why these art schools aren't helping their students in what is one of the most fundamental aspects of having any kind of career. And, and that's to be able to present your work in a business-like manner. It, it just it baffles me. Because I guarantee you that when you are in business, somebody will always look to take advantage of you. Period. It's the way of the world. It's the way it always was and the way it always will be. And the, the roads are littered with artists who went in wide-eyed and bushy-tailed 
and never got their works back or never got paid for them or was paid a certain amount because the person said, well, you're only getting this because it's sold for this when that isn't what you thought it was supposed to be sold for. But if you had it in writing, you wouldn't have to deal with that stuff. There needs to become a level of maturity about yourself as an artist that should be inherent in the way that you operate. And for some people it is, and for some people it isn't. And those people inevitably wind up paying the price. Like I said, I've been doing this for a long time, and all the time I hear horror stories. Talk to any artist, they'll be able to tell you, if not them, that a friend of theirs has somehow, some way, lost out on something because they weren't professional enough about the way that they handled their own work. Maybe you can share with us what a typical day in your line of work looks like. You come in in the morning. What do you do? Yeah, get in the morning. The, um, well, usually it starts with waking up. I mm. wake, wake up, grab my phone, look to see the emails that have come in. Delete the ones right away that I have no reason to look at or read. Get rid of all the flotsam and jetsam in, in my emails so, so I know when I come in, what's on my computer is stuff that needs to be attended to. So I take a few minutes every morning when I wake up, go through my emails, delete all the stuff that's garbage. So I know when I walk in here, it's, it's about work. And then I'd say probably the first hour is spent directly on my computer, answering emails, Responding to artists, responding to collectors, responding to inquiries that have come in through the website, that have come in through Artsy or other platforms that we're on. It's about, because of the quote-unquote computer age, there is an expected response sense of immediacy. Hmm. Uh, and so I try to do that. I try to be as responsive as quickly as possible. And I know for a fact that based on responses that I've gotten over the years, that isn't always done by galleries. You know, I'll respond to somebody the same day. And for me, that's too long a period of time. Responding within a couple of hours at the most is what I try to do. Because people expect to be responded to because of the internet. Um, and so I hear all the time, well, thank you so much for getting back to me so quickly. Um, because I know for a fact that a lot of galleries don't respond as quickly as they should. And so the first hour or so is, is about that. But in between the emails, it's about talking with the staff. Um, I have a stack of things that need to be packed up, shipped out, attended to, emailed, et cetera, et cetera. And so I deal with, with the staff about whose responsibilities, you know, who needs to do what, what's on the agenda for today, where are we going, what are we doing, who are we seeing, what needs to be packed up and shipped out today, what needs to be prepped, um, what do we have to do to prepare for whatever the next show is going to be. It, it, because we have a show, one show at least every month, you are always in the process of wrapping something up or opening something else up. 
there, there's never a time, you know, we may get a day or two during the course of a month when there's nothing literally hanging over our heads. And those are great days. They, <laughs> they, they don't happen very often, but there's, you know, every once in a while there's a day when you're like, okay, I have a day where I don't have to like totally sweat this. Um, it doesn't happen very often, but they're, they're really great when they do. So we are, like I said, we're always in the process of if we've had a show, you know, for the next few days after the show, we're, we're involved in dealing with the sales of the show, whether, whether it's the banking, the invoicing, the contacting of the artists, the checking of the accounts, seeing the funds came in, making sure that all the frames are inspected on the work that we're shipping out, make sure all the packing materials are, have been ordered and are ready to be used to get the work out there, making sure that we have the right information that we need to send something out, dealing with the packers and the shippers the different shipping companies that we work with, there's a tremendous amount that goes on behind the scenes that people aren't aware of, whether it's collectors or artists. Mm. Uh, just selling a painting is 10% of the transaction. There, there's that other 90% that takes up your day, whether it's having communicated with the artist about the work that they're doing, making sure that the artist gets the work to you on time, making sure that when the work comes in, it's it's cataloged, it's photographed, it's it's all this stuff that we need to present it online, make sure we have decent quality photographs of everything that comes in, wondering where this is going to fit in within the exhibition that we've got coming up. I mean, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of questions and hundreds and hundreds of things that need to be done before the work goes on the wall and before a red dot goes on the tag. And conversely, there are hundreds and hundreds of things that need to be done after the red, red dot goes on the tag. After the work is sold, you have to make sure that it gets to the right place, gets to it properly. So in order for a work to get to a collector properly, you have to make sure that it's been packaged properly, that it's been shipped properly, that it's been, you know, sent with the right materials for them to have, et cetera, et cetera. There, there are hundreds and hundreds of things that go on behind the scenes. It's just like a movie. You know, when you, when you sit down and watch the movie, you're never going to be fully aware of the thousands of things that it took to get this up on the screen. Just like you have no idea the hundreds of steps that had to be taken care of for the painting to be hung in somebody's home. And that's also something that artists need to be aware of. So I, I find it humorous when there are these artists that say, you know, whatever percentage the gallery takes from the sale is too much. Well, you go ahead and you make sure that you're doing every one of these steps. And I assure you more of your time is going to be taken up doing the ancillary work than it is doing the actual painting. But some people need to be taught a lesson <laughs> and need to find out what it takes to do everything. And others understand that and, and respect the gallery's role in the work, in the sort of the idea of selling artwork. What was the impact of the pandemic on your business? To be honest, it really didn't have a tremendous response. And we're very, very fortunate. I, like, we're not a gallery that relies heavily on walk-in traffic. 
Though, like in any business matter, location, location, location is important. But more important is our communication with the artists and our communication with the collectors. So for us, we went from investing our time and our resources at a certain percentage into our website, into social media, to increasing that tremendously Mm -hmm. by making ourselves much, much more present online and upgrading the website and upgrading our social media and paying much more attention to that. And by virtue of us making a concerned effort to do that, we were fine. We had shows where we would, thank God, sell out a show of 20 to 30 pieces because we were very proactive online, even though not a single piece sold in person. So any gallery that, you know, it's funny, I, as I go around social media, I'll look at a gallery's page on Instagram and I'll see that they have 870 followers. And I just think to myself, why don't you have tens of thousands of people? You know, you've got good work. Why, why isn't it? And they just don't invest the time into that. Or I'll go and I'll look at a gallery website and I'll just think, this is just awful. This, you know, you're, you're doing a disservice, not only to your artists, but to your own business. Again, it, it, I keep on going back to the fact that it's a business. And if you, if you are a business and you do a lousy commercial on television, you're going to find out about it. Your sales are not going to increase. And the same thing with any kind of social media or anything online. If you have a lousy website, or if you have a really crappy social media presence, it's going to hurt. And I know a lot of galleries went out of business over the past couple of years because of that, because they, they strictly relied on people walking through the door. Hmm. And they found that they didn't have a strong social media presence, or they found that they weren't spending as much time following up on inquiries or following up with collectors who may have bought things in the past. If you're not aware of that, if you're not doing that, if you just wait for somebody to walk in through the door and buy something, you're not going to be around for long. You're just not. You you need to be aware of every aspect of communicating and acting on behalf of your artists to get their work seen and purchased. And I I think you guys left for L.A. for a while and then came back. What was the story behind that? This was in 2015. We opened the gallery in late 2000. 2015, the rent for the space that mm. we were in on Green Street was approaching 50000 a month. And it wasn't anything that I wanted to do any longer. I just found myself not only working much, much, much harder than I should have been, but also bringing in work that I knew was going to sell and sacrificing the quality in exchange for the sales. Mm. And when I really started objectively seeing that, I knew it was time to do something. So in late 2015, I started looking for other spaces around New York. But 2015, the rents were astronomical, absolutely astronomical, anywhere. (coughs) doesn't matter if it was the Lower East Side or... West Chelsea or whatever, just everywhere you went, 
business was booming. Landlords didn't care. They'd just keep the space empty for another month until somebody was going to be paying their exorbitant rents. And even though we still had many, many years left on our lease, our landlords were more than happy to let us get out of the lease so they could bring somebody else in afterwards two and three times that amount. And so I thought, well, we've got a great following out on the West Coast, great collectors out there. I've never lived in California. Why not? It, it was good as any place else. And if I'm going to move somewhere, I might as well move somewhere where the weather's terrific. <laughs> so we moved out to L.A. And business was fine because, again, we're very proactive in, in other things besides the street-level walk-in part of our business. Um, but after a while... Because I was born in New York, I was born in Queens, I'm a New Yorker, it's just in my blood. And I found that just the excitement and the energy wasn't what I had hoped it would be out there. It, it, it's true to the stereotype. Everything is much more laid back and everything is much, um, much more sit back and see kind of scenario. And that's, that's not me. Uh, I'm very much about of the moment going for whatever and, and acting on it. And about two years ago or so, all of a sudden this thing called COVID came around and I started mm. seeing all these articles online about how everybody was fleeing New York City. Everybody was moving out of New York. Everybody was going to Long Island or they were moving because they just didn't want to stay in New York City during the height. Before anybody really knew what was going on with COVID, everybody was just getting out of the city. And the same thing happened with businesses because people stopped walking around in New York. Dozens, if not hundreds and hundreds of businesses in New York City had closed. And one of the effects of that happening was that landlords, I'm almost hesitant to say to their credit, understood that if you're going to bring businesses back, you need to be much more rational about what you're charging for the space. And so I started reaching out to some commercial real estate brokers and I thought, you know, far be it from me not to take advantage of a good pandemic. I uh, contacted some real estate brokers and found information about some spaces and what was available. And if you had told me five years ago that I'd be moving from Green Street between Broom and Grand to West Broadway between Spring and Prince for less than half of what I was paying, I never in a million years would have believed you. I, I would have laughed, absolutely laughed my ass off. Um, but it happened. And there were several spaces in this area that the landlords had come to their senses and realized that they would rather have a business for the long term at a lower rent then worry about a business failing at a higher rent and having to go through the whole thing over again. So I was lucky enough to have found this space and it worked in conjunction with me wanting to move back to New York and wanting to come back to a marketplace that I felt was more sophisticated and knowledgeable and understanding of what it is that this gallery is trying to show and create and it all you know, do not for a moment think that it's because of any kind of superior business acumen or real estate inside knowledge or anything like that it was pure luck and timing 
nothing more than that. I was getting tired of Los Angeles. I wanted to move back to New York. New York was emptying out at the same time. The rents were dropping and I jumped on it. And we're here for at least 10 years and I couldn't be happier. And I know that our collectors, it's been wonderful coming back for the last year that we've been back here. Just time and time again, every, every week or every month, we get people walking in that are just saying, we're so glad you're back because there's no other place that we would have bought artwork from, which is a tremendous compliment. Tremendous. What we try to show here is, I think, different than a lot of the other galleries in New York City. I'm not saying it's better. I'm not saying it's worse. I'm just saying we have a specific vision and we have a specific niche of what we show. And hopefully enough people like what we show and feel the same way and want to buy it and add it to their collections. So again, that's why. It was purely monetary. There was no other reason for leaving New York. Business was terrific. Everything was great. But I was not going to be paying this ridiculous amount of money. So I thought... Literally, it was just a roll of the dice. Why not? Let's, you know, close your eyes, throw a dart at a map and see what happens. And really, it was, well, if I'm going to go, let's go to a place where the weather is amazing. And that was L.A. But I'm glad to be back. Yeah, I'm glad you guys are back, too. When when I discovered that you closed down, it was by sheer surprise because I was just in the area and I was thinking, oh, I'm, I'm around. Let's see what's up at Arcadia. And I, I walk up to that old space and I <laughs> saw that it was closed. The sign was still up. I was heartbroken. So as soon as, as, soon as I heard that, that you're back in town, I, um, I rejoiced. That's a great, it, it's a tremendous compliment. We've, we've been hearing it from a lot of people that are just happy that we're back. And, and you, know, you couldn't ask for anything better. That There are people out there who appreciate what we're trying to do and what we're trying to show. You know, we're not trying to be anything more than that, more than what we are, which is just a place where you can come and hopefully see what we think is good work. And if you agree, we're glad to have you here. Brilliant. Well, Stephen, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you so much. If anybody listening wants to know more about you and about Arcadia, where should they go? The gallery. <laughs> come on in, either come to the gallery or go to the website. Everything that we want people to know about the gallery is through the works that we show, through the artists that we represent. Uh, It's about you look at what they're doing and you see how they're trying to have their own voice and their own vision for what they're creating. It may be to your taste, it may not be, but for us, it's what we're trying to accomplish. And hopefully you'll like it as much as we do. Oh, I love it. And to everybody listening, I'll put all the links to all the gallery pages in the show notes. And this is one you guys cannot miss out on. Stephen, thanks so much. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to see it grow, please take a moment to subscribe, rate it highly, and share it with a friend. If you'd like to become a supporter of the show and have access to exclusive content, please consider signing up as a patron at patreon.com slash kengoshen. For online lessons, please visit kengoshen.com slash lessons. Thanks again and see you next time.